gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Where to begin? I, I just asked, as I was heading down into my cave, my office is in the basement. I asked the fair Jessica, anything you want me to talk about today? Because sometimes it's just more helpful to get a request. Um, it's, it's sort of like why improv asks for, you know, suggestions from the audience. Um, if you, you need something to work off of. Instead, she said, she said, no. So you're going downstairs to talk to yourself by yourself again. And I was like, yeah. And she goes, well, you know, I question the, whether this is good for your mental health. But you know how I feel about that. So carry on. Um, she does not like me do it. It's not that she disagrees with the solo podcast content per se. She thinks it's unhealthy for me to just come down here into a cave and talk stream of consciousness for an hour. And I get the misgiving. That's how I um, felt originally when this idea was proposed to me a long time ago. Scott Immergut, uh, the producer of Glop and, um, and, and many other things. For years, he was like, you know, you should just, you know, just do an audio version of the G file. Um, and I was like, hey, you want me to just sit there and talk alone to a mic? And I just thought it was kind of weird and gross and all that kind of stuff. Um, obviously, I don't think it's as weird or gross because I wouldn't be doing it, you know, um, now. I will say it's helped me talk without, I think I do far fewer ums and ahs if you go back and listen to the beginning of this than I did, um, you know, when I started. Uh, I just spoke to a bunch of uh, Davidson students uh, last night at GW. Uh, they're all here for like their summer intern programs, whatever, and they do classes. And I, I spoke to them for you know an hour without interruption and then did Q&A for another hour. And, you know, I've always been a talker, um, but uh, I just think I've gotten better at it. And now that I said I do fewer ums and ahs, I hear it too. I'm umming and eyeing. And so, you know... If anybody out there has control of my pain collar, you're free to activate it right now. Uh, anyway, so moving on, I'm not going to do too much Trump stuff. There's so much Trump stuff. We talked about Trump stuff for the entire Dispatch podcast yesterday. Um, I think everybody knows where I come down on this. The only thing I'll add for right now is uh, I just have zero sympathy for uh, people who think that somehow this is all persecution of Trump. I, look, I, there's a, there's a colorable argument that uh, they should have used, you know, prosecutorial, prosecutorial discretion not to charge for like at least the first 31 counts of the indictment. Uh, I disagree with it, but it's, I think it's a legitimate argument. Sarah makes a good case. It's a legitimate argument. Uh, if you want to, but I, I just don't understand how you can look at the obstruction stuff and say, yeah, they just should have declined to prosecute that. They went to great lengths to get Trump to cooperate. Trump refused to cooperate. All of this reporting that's coming out now is pretty hilarious about how some staffers called the boxes, his beautiful mind boxes and all that kind of stuff. He brings this on himself. That's, you know, I think Carl Rove is right in the Wall Street Journal today. I haven't read the piece, but I heard some clips of it on the morning shows and um, Trump brought this on himself. Like this seems to me, obviously I am more sympathetic to sort of Chris Christie's full spectrum uh, attacks on Donald Trump, 
But if I were Ron DeSantis, I really don't understand why he can't make the argument or why any of them can't make the argument, why Nikki Haley can't make the argument that, you know, Trump, we should all be grateful to Trump. I don't think we should be grateful to Trump, but this is what it would appeal. You know, if you're trying to appeal to voters who like Trump, um, we're grateful to Trump. He did some important things in his presidency, but he just makes the left's job so much easier. People who say, if he can do this to the president, he can do it to anybody. It's just not true. It's just, it's just, it's just not true. Like they can't prosecute Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or Chris Christie or any of those guys for willfully obstructing uh, the FBI trying to get back, you know, important documents. Um, they can't, you know, they can't indict him in New York. You know, they can't indict Tim Scott in New York for paying off a porn star. Trump makes the job of his enemies so much easier. And, uh, and he does it in part because he takes his supporters' support for granted. He thinks he owns that. He thinks it's his property. He thinks he's entitled to it. And so therefore he thinks it's fine for him to abuse the trust and patience of his biggest fans because he knows he's got them in his pocket no matter what. And I, I, I don't, I, you can't run for president of the United States without arguing that you are the better candidate and that your opponent, particularly when your opponent is the front runner by a wide margin, that your opponent's supporters are wrong to be supporting him. And until these guys figure out how to make those arguments, I kind of have contempt for all of them. And I'm not, I'm not saying that all the arguments will work, but you have to try. You have to come up with something. We've now, we're, today is the eight-year anniversary of him coming down that escalator. And everybody is waiting for Godot to come storming in and take care of Trump for them. I just think it's pathetic and sad in a lot of ways. Uh, oh, the only other thing I want to say, because I, I, I have pretty strong feelings about this. I got into a big fight with some people um, at CNN not long ago because there are there are two schools of thought about why Trump took uh, these boxes and refused to give them up and just kept my boxes. You know, it's the Sunny Bunch sort of meme. You know, they're my boxes. That's that's why he wanted them because they're mine. You know, and or as David French says, it's like the seagulls in Finding Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. That's one school of thought. He just wanted them. And the other school of thought is, oh, there's vital information in there that he was going to sell to the highest bidder or do some sort of skullduggery with the Saudis or the Chinese or, or the North Koreans or whatever. And you, it's funny how I think of anti-Trump people, this is one of the great dividing lines. Uh, I've talked about this phenomenon in a zillion other contexts over the years, but there are some people who are political addicts who immediately assume villainous and evil intent by people they don't like, right? It's of a piece with conspiracy theory stuff is that they think that some bad outcome, some bad decision, some bad situation is the product of malevolent genius and uh, scheming. And they they reason backwards. They do the whole cui bono thing. You know, who benefits? I prefer the Italian chepaga. 
this idea, you know, like that's, that's, that's the core of a lot of conspiracy theory stuff is bad thing happens and you reason backwards who benefits most from it. And then you assume that they're actually responsible because they benefit most. I'm not saying that thinking is never right. You know, it's very Machiavellian. It's you couldn't have a lot of movies and TV shows and novels without that being um, a real thing. But in Washington, it's usually not mustache twirling, evil mastermind stuff. It's chaos and stupidity and petty vanity that explains a lot more. And I think that there are, I mean, the whole Russia collusion thing from the beginning, one of the reasons why it got so far out over its skis was that so many people wanted uh, Trump to be part of this big, vast, evil conspiracy rather than just a doddering sort of high-octane oaf who blunders from one thing to another. And I've always been mostly on, on, on team blunder. I don't think that Trump ever had the capacity to think more than a couple moves ahead. I always thought it was, a, and it, it, there's a mirror image of this, right? It's the people on the right who love Trump who did all of that. He's playing 3D chess. He's playing six moves ahead. He's got the Democrats right where they want him. The, the, the noble savior mastermind and the evil uh, antichrist mastermind arguments are mere, they're the real horseshoe theory in some ways in that they, they mirror each other in these presuppositions. And I think for the most part, they're all friggin' ludicrous. Um, and again, this is not unique to Trump. This phenomenon goes on all the time. I mean, I remember all the people who were convinced that, you know, the Iraq war was all about getting contracts for Halliburton, right? There's this, this particularly in the, sort of the vulgar Marxist kind of left, all bad things really get boiled down to, um, you know, these cartoonish plots by big corporations. That's now become another parallel on the right where you get a lot of sort of fever swampy people who think it's all big pharma who, you know, are orchestrating new vaccines to keep people enthralled. And there's actually, what is it called? Um, there's this like Michael Flynn weird Michael Flynn affiliated um, movement called Pure Bloods. And it's not like some eugenic uh, Aryan thing. It's people who've refused to have their blood tainted by the vile, vile vaccine, which is a very sort of John Bircher kind of, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're tainting our precious bodily fluids um, kind of thing, um, which of course is from, I always have to explain movie references of a certain age these days because so many young people haven't seen sort of fundamental canon movies to be talking about politics, like Dr. Strangelove. Um, we'll talk about that in a second, I guess. But anyway, so, uh, you know, I think, you know, Trump turned 77 this week. Uh, no offense, I know I have, a, I have a lot of, you know, listeners in their 70s who are spry, attentive, active people and all the rest. But just as a general thing, and I include members of my own family in this, Old people in seventies, I do think, is old. Um, uh, old people start to become pack rats, and they start to become sort of weird about things. Um, 
uh, don't get me started about like what happens to old people's, including my mom's, my mother-in-law's, it happens to lots of people. What happens to their sort of practices with the refrigerators about not throwing stuff away and, you know, if you're not going to eat it within a couple of days, get rid of it kind of thing goes out the window. Um, I have my own evolutionary theories about some of this. I think that as we get older, some part of our brain kicks in that says, well, I can't go on the hunting trips. I'm not good at gathering anymore. So I have to hoard my resources um, as, much as, I, as much as possible um, because I don't know, you know, how much I'm going to be able to share in the provisions of the tribe anymore. That could be an entirely a just-so story. It just, it kind of feels that way to me. Anyway, look, I mean, obviously Trump, private jet, Mar-a-Lago, Bedminster, got a lot of money. Uh, maybe not as much as he says he has, but he's got a lot of money. Uh, he doesn't need to hoard, you know, food um, or anything like that. But given his narcissism, given his, uh, you know, just incredibly well-documented love of showing off stuff, right? He loves to show off stuff, loves to take people on tours and show them the bathrooms. He loves... You know, um, when he doesn't have something cool to show off, he makes stuff up like the Time magazine cover, making him man of the year when he wasn't, that kind of stuff. The, the Scottish heraldics, you know, seal that he created for his family that doesn't exist. Um, and so he had all this cool stuff, right? He was a pack rat. He would ask CIA briefers who didn't want to leave documents with him, can I keep this? And they would say, no, I'd really rather you didn't. And he says, well, I'm the president, I'm keeping it. And he would squirrel it away and he put it in one of his boxes. They're his boxes. And I think that, you know, he kind of felt like they were like his yearbooks from high school or something. And um, the only thing I'll credit to the, the, the nefarious theory thing is that there's another thing about Trump where he's like, um, you know, he, he, again, he, he tells you who he is all the time. It's not like he's a very mysterious, complicated figure. You know, he always says, I like to keep my options open. That's why he doesn't actually commit to anything. He won't commit to like endorsing the nominee if it's not him. He won't commit that the election was fair. He won't commit that, you know, he won't, he doesn't like to be put on the record, which is kind of weird since he's perfectly comfortable going back on his word. But, um, so he likes to keep his options open, right? He doesn't want to foreclose on any opportunities. And so, it is entirely possible that in the back of his head, he was sort of like, some of this stuff could be useful one day. But the idea that he had some grand plan to sell nuclear secrets to Iran or something, I, I just think is nonsense. It's not that I don't think he's morally capable of doing stuff like that. I just don't think it was like the deal. I think he was just sort of, you know, a, a pack rat who wanted all of these trophies and mementos. You know, to be able to show off and wave around at people and say, hey, look, this is classified. You can't see it. That kind of thing. He's a big baby. And I think this bothers, again, going back to his biggest fans and his biggest foes, it bothers these people because they want to live in more dramatic times. Because the more dramatic the moment, the more, you know, grandiose the stakes the more important they feel themselves, the more, you know, all that kind of thing. All these reporters who wanted this to be the next Watergate, you know, and I don't mean just this, I mean like everything in the Trump presidency. They wanted to find some great grand evil scheme because if they're the ones who find it, that elevates their status. 
and the defenders want to have their status elevated as well. I'm not saying this is the all explanatory thing about it, but it is this amazing tendency to want the guy to be so much more than he actually is. Occam's razor is pretty, you know, pretty clear cut here. Trump does things for his own personal interest, for nobody else's interest. He is entirely and completely self-absorbed and self-interested. And that doesn't necessarily mean financial maximization, though obviously he likes to make a lot of money. He cares most about being able to brag about things. That's why he cheats at golf so much, right? I mean, that's, that's who the guy is, is he just wants to assert how cool and awesome and better he is than everybody else. This is why he fundamentally absolutely believes he's the smartest person in every room that he's in. Uh, there are these stories, some of them are sort of off the record, about people telling him, hire people that are smarter than you, which is like one of these cliches about management. And he, he, he hates that because he's like, there's nobody smarter than me in the room. I'm always the smartest person in the room. And the problem with when you th always think you're the smartest person in the room and you, as you always say, you go by your own instincts on everything. When somebody offers advice that you want to be true or to be the, the right advice, you go with it because you don't trust the people, you don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't trust the messengers who give you bad news. And that's how we got into this stupid situation in the first place is all of his real lawyers, you know, these serious people, including like the former, you know, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida, or whatever, you know, all these like real people, serious lawyers that he paid millions of dollars to. They said, look, we can work this thing out. You just got to return all the stuff and, you know, I'll have a meeting with DOJ and we'll take care of it. And he was like, no, 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 these are my boxes. They're mine, 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 mine. And then Tom Fitton, who's the head of uh, Judicial Watch, who's not a lawyer, he's got a BA in English from GW, um, completely misread this case that Judicial Watch was involved in in 2012 as being applicable to their situation and, um, and gave Trump the advice he wanted to hear, which is you don't have to give back anything. And so he went with this guy. I'm not even sure Trump knew that that Fitton wasn't a lawyer. And uh, and now he's in all of this trouble. And I just sort of, I mean, I, I think it is so wonderfully poetic that, that, that Fitton and Judicial Watch have gotten Trump into so much, helped get Trump into so much trouble. Ultimately, it's all the blame is on Trump himself, obviously. But um, that they are accomplices and enablers, I think, is, is pretty hilarious. So enough with all that. All I will say is like, you should listen to the uh, advisory opinions podcast on all of this. And if you think that Sarah and if you're of a certain conservative bent and you think for whatever strange reason that Sarah and David are too hostile to Trump, which, I, you know, whatever. Uh, but and you want some verification, verification to the, the legal diciness of Trump's position. Go listen to the latest uh, McCarthy report, which is Andy, my friend Andy McCarthy's podcast over at NR. And, uh, you know, he's got criticisms of Biden. He's got criticisms of the DOJ. Um, but as, you know, Andy explained on Hugh Hewitt's show apparently this week, uh, this, uh, this narrow thing, you know, National Archives, whatever, the, the National Archives uh, Records Act stuff, it's just a garbage argument. Makes no sense. Does not apply in this case. Andy just sort of runs through why that's so. 
And if you think Andy is too hostile to Trump, then you're probably not listening to this podcast in the first place. There's no substantive defense uh, for what Trump did legally. Um, and which is why I think he's going for a political solution to all of this rather than a legal one. All right. I said I wasn't going to talk much about him and then I went on for 20 minutes about him. So I apologize for that. Okay. So let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, of what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So I, oh, I, so I have this opened up, or at least I tried to have it opened up. I missed most of this brouhaha. And by the time I asked a guy um, to confirm that this thing was real, apparently Johns Hopkins took the the page down to study the issue more. But um, this was bouncing around all over the place um, on the Twitters earlier this week. It's from the Johns Hopkins University uh, Diversity and Inclusion gender and sexuality resources department section of their website. I'm not sure. This is from their LGBTQ glossary. And so here is the definition of a lesbian. A non-man attracted to non-men. While past definitions refer to lesbian as a woman who is emotionally, romantically, and or sexually attracted to other women, this updated definition includes non-binary people who may also identify with the label. And here's the definition of gay man. A man who is emotionally, romantically, sexually, affectionately, or relationally attracted to other men or who identifies as a member of the gay community. At times, gay is used to refer to all people, regardless of gender, who have their primary sexual and or romantic attractions to people of the same gender. Gay is an adjective, not a noun, as in he is a gay man. Now, I, I guess I got no, I can't, reading this on the fly, I probably just shouldn't have read the gay man um, definition because it seems okay at first blush to me. But the lesbian one is what is fascinating to me because, like, this first sentence, a non-man attracted to non-men. 
feminism, again, I remember I went to an old women's college. I took a lot of women's studies courses. I read a lot of Catherine McKinnon and a lot of Foucault and a lot of what passed for, you know, uh, critical gender theory stuff back in those days. And the idea that a woman's identity, never mind a lesbian's identity, is um, wrapped up purely in their status um, of relationship towards men. I mean, it's just such a fascinating way of explaining this. It's like, it, it's returning to this idea that men are the norm. Everybody else is defined by their deviance, deviancy from the male norm. Anyway, I think it's fascinating and weird how people are getting so tied up in this stuff. And I'm not going to dwell on it. I know I talked about it for a while the other week. Um, but there was this clip going around, you know, the Dom can find the audio, maybe we'll plug it in at the end or something, but of a California legislator um, in the state assembly or the state Senate, I don't know which, who was proposing legislation where basically the state could hold it against parents if they didn't affirm their small children's gender identity and like it could be an issue for social services about child custody or about your interaction with welfare or whatever you know the state could take you know the 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 great eye of mordor that is the state would see into your home to make sure that you were affirming the gender identity of your child and in her own this legislator's own example it was a seven-year-old child you have a seven-year-old who's who's talking about having a potential to say, I being able to articulate that they believe that they are not the same gender um, as they are biologically, then it should be affirmed. And through care, it should be determined. And that's what we did with our own child. Look, I, again, I struggle with this because I really want to be compassionate and and have grace in my heart towards, you know, um, adult people who are making adults' decisions about who they are and what they are and what they want to be and how they want to live and all that. And even if I have my misgivings about all of that, it's their business and all that. If you have a seven-year-old child, that is your business. It is not, you know, I'm not saying it's never the state's business. Child abuse is like, there are, there are places where the state can pierce um, parental autonomy um, I am not an absolutist on parental autonomy. I am very much against like child liberation and 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 child emancipation, which was a sort of quasi big movement 30, 40 years ago. Um, but uh, you know, if you're if you're harming your child, the state, you know, the police can do something about it. I got no problem with that. But this is not that, right? I mean, like. This idea that seven-year-olds, seven-year-olds can have the, the cognitive ability to make deep and permanent choices about their sexuality. Um, I just find, I, I, I'm sure there are exceptions to the rule. I and if it's, if there are intersex examples or something like that, those are outliers and those are categorical differences. They are, they, they are, these are the, those are the, like the places where you have herm hermaphrodism or intersexism or whatever the correct terms are. 
the activists use those examples to as a sort of as a wedge or a blocking tackle to do this much more ideological psychological stuff that isn't grounded in sort of in physical um uh you know abnormalities for one of a less pejorative term um and uh but if you have a biologically intact physically healthy boy or girl seven years old and they think they really should be the other sex i'm not saying you need to be cruel about anything i'm not saying you can't have conversations about it all that kind of stuff but at the end of the day there are these things called fads you know i mean like this is one of the things that really pisses off people like my wife you know where we are now telling every tomboy girl out there oh you're really a boy which used to be like the cruelest thing you could say to tomboys, or at least to some tomboys. Um, you know, my wife was a tomboy. She liked to go out in the woods and play with stuff and get in fights with her brothers and all of that kind of stuff. Um, it's a phase. There's nothing particularly bad about it. You know, sometimes it's good. It depends where you live and it depends what's right for you. I have, you know, whatever. Um, and similarly, you know, this is a point Andrew Sullivan makes. We're telling, you know, gay teenagers or gay kids. Um, oh, you're really a girl, you know, and maybe you know, some of these kids may not even be gay. Kids go through weird moments and phases, right? Think about all the stuff they're exposed to on the internet where, you know, I mean, it's not hard for even little kids to stumble upon porn and gross things on the web. Um, older brothers, kids at school can show them even more disgusting things. It could freak them out. It could make them feel like, you know, they don't know what they like and don't like because, you know, some of that stuff is icky and, you know, fads happen and like just the idea that somehow the state could sanction people for not taking some declaration of sexual identity from their seven-year-old child as a permanent statement of who they are and then act accordingly that somehow the state needs to get involved in that is grotesque to me on a level I cannot begin to tell you. I try really hard not to find common cause with a lot of the crazies out there on the right these days, but like, I get why this riles them up. And all you need to do is think about like, let's say you're a Jewish family and your seven-year-old kid or 10-year-old kid, whatever, but you know, your kid, your kid, grade school kid says, actually, I'm Muslim. Well, you know, again, you can have conversations about that. You can... Uh, you can indulge that and go down the road with that for a little while, or you can say, you're crazy, we're Jews here, we're proud to be Jews, blah, 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 you don't know what you're talking about, really, you're Muslim, Read, you know, tell me a few lines from the Quran, right? I mean, you can go a thousand different ways, from ridicule to support. The idea that the state could come in and say to parents, no, 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 you have to respect this religious identity of your kid. Joe would strike me as like one of the most grotesque overreaches of state authority. Um, and you can do that on all sorts of other, in, you know, things that people would understand and immediately agree with me about. But then because of this sort of this whole transsexual identity thing comes into it and all of a sudden, no, 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 the state needs to come in on that. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, and again, take your you know, your, your, your exceptions that prove the rule examples, 
and stuff them in a sack because I'm talking about the kind of examples that like this, this legislator was talking about and the kind of examples that, that make people angry. And I, I get really tired with the bait and switches. And um, I just don't think that this is a remotely unreasonable position. I'm open to new facts that I don't understand or I, you know, new situations um, or new arguments. But if you're not open to my position, then you really don't understand the politics of this, it seems to me. You don't understand why this sort of viscerally, you know, enrages a lot of people. Um, and, uh, and I think, I really do think that the left, the LGBTQ community has gotten itself into this really weird cul-de-sac where they can't let go of things. Um, and they can't let go of this sort of new celebratory approach to this. You had this idiotic trans woman going topless at the White House. Uh, was it this week, last weekend, something like that for Pride Month? And it's just, I mean, like, again, forget whether it's offensive or offends you or offends me or whatever like that. Forget whether you have contempt for that kind of so exhibitionism, which I do. And I would have contempt for that exhibitionism from a cis heteronormal woman, whatever. I just think it's, you don't do that at the White House. I don't even like it when they do it at Mardi Gras. But this approach to the politics of the trans thing, I just think is so undermining to the, the, the hard-won victories and successes of the gay rights movement. Um, you know, the argument that won the day for gay marriage was, you know, as, Andy, as Andrew Sullivan put it, virtually normal. It was like, we want access to these institutions like marriage and sort of the bourgeois life and we think we deserve them and we're upstanding taxpaying citizens and we behave with dignity um, in our lives and we should be expected to behave with dignity in our lives. I think there were some inconsistencies in Andy's arguments from time to time, Andrew's arguments from time to time about this stuff, but that the actual main thrust of his argument was very compelling. You know, it wasn't just Andrew, it was like Jonathan Rauch and a bunch of, pe bunch of people. And this, the, the, the trans stuff, you know, by making drag queens the poster child, children, poster people for the movement, they're making the exact opposite argument. They're making the argument that this sort of outlandish ex exhibitionist stuff is the definition of this identity, right? And, you know, they're not putting out, you know, Deirdre McCloskey as the, uh, you know, scholarly, you know, reserved, you know, conservative in appearance and, and demeanor, uh, trans woman, uh, they're not making that the sort of model of the movement. They're making, you know, you know, these twerking drag queen, you know, types, the spokespeople or the icons of, of this liberationist movement. And the thing is, is that the drag queens are behaving in ways that would be wildly inappropriate for biological women to behave. And somehow it's supposed to be okay for trans women to do that. And you're a bigot if you, you're offended by it. And like, I, like I would be offended by an old fashioned biological female, cis, whatever the right friggin' phrase is, heteronormative, you know, strip show. Like what if it was just, just a really hot woman doing a strip show, you know, or a simulated strip show for little, for, for kids. That would be gross too. Why is it any less gross with, with someone who's pretending to be a biological woman. I just, it, the, the, 
I, I hate dwelling on this. It's just, it's just one of these things that I find the arguments from the other side so counterproductive for their own cause um, and so incendiary and distracting for the right that um, it's just this amazing source of frustration to me. All right, but enough of all that. What else? Oh, so yesterday, so yesterday, that Michael Knowles guy from the Daily Wire, who I admit I often get confused with Steve Crowder. And in fact, a lot of people, I mean, I know I've known Ben Shapiro for a while. I know who Ben Shapiro is, but there are a lot of people in that larger sort of Daily Wire, Daily Wire adjacent universe that I can't keep straight. I can't keep straight the actual institution sometimes. Anyway, Knowles did this, I guess he's got some sort of show where he talked about how you want to go back to the 1220s, the 1220s, 1220s, like the year 1,220 forward, that decade, um, and have that kind of social conservatism um, before all of this modern ideology has kind of warped everything. And I made fun of it on the Twitters. Um, I said something, and I listed some of the things that popped to mind when you think about sort of early medieval late dark ages kind of stuff. And um, I was like, really trial by ordeal, torture, women as property, state and church sanctioned child abuse, witch burning, blah, 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 blah. Michael Brennan Doherty, my friend, came at me and said, well, that was really sort of more like the late medieval period on the witch burning, which he's right. It was, there was witch burning in the 13th century. It just wasn't, you know, part of this, that witch hunting craze which really comes with the Protestant Reformation which, and I think, and MBD is right about the Catholic Church was, I wrote about this in my underrated second book, Tyrion Clichés, the Catholic Church worked very hard to, you know, tamp down on witch hunts and witch trials and witch burning and all of that, um, you know, in the 1500s, 1600s, that kind of thing. But uh, regardless, there was witch burning in the 13th century. And regardless, Knowles being an idiot. One of the, some people who push back on me about it um, other than Michael with his, you know, uh, correcting the record on, you know, the apogee of, of witch burning stuff. People say, you know, that, you know, they just say this stuff to get attacked by people like you, which is probably true. I should probably ignore it more. But at the same time, if somebody wants to wear a giant sandwich board and ring a bell saying I'm an idiot to entice me to call them an idiot, um, I don't feel like I'm the loser in that exchange, really. Um, you know, sometimes you get what you wish for. And then, you know, the other defense is, which may in fact be true, is that Knowles is, uh, you know, he's just, uh, he's just using hyperbole to make a point. That's possible. I don't watch, listen, or read that guy on purpose very often, if ever. Um, you know, and anybody's sort of in the Candace Owens universe, um, I'm not going to take super seriously as a thinker in any way. And, you know, so maybe it was just sort of rhetorical excess to make a point. The reason why I commented and got caught up in it was that, you know, just read this Michael, uh, this new Patrick Deneen book where, you know, he's really extolling 13th century political thought. I reviewed that book about the, the reactionary mind, which was, you know, praising the world of the 800s to the 1200s as like morally superior today because it had a you know, a morally integral order. There's this whole movement out there that is looking back and, and, and 
to prior to the Enlightenment as um, the lodestar for how we should organize society today. And it gets treated as a serious political movement. It gets treated as a serious political argument. Politico did this bizarre, long profile of Patrick Deneen as if he's like the intellectual of this age, um, where you had, uh, you know, Mike Needham, of all people, praising Deneen as this really important intellectual. Um, and, you know, there was this to be sure bit from Needham saying, not that we agree with everything he says. I would, I would hope not. Um, but look, you know, Deneen is, is rejecting modernity in this book. And I, I want to keep my powder dry for when the, the review comes out. Um, although there are a lot of reviews already out and I kind of feel like I should have been harsher <laughs> given how harsh a lot of the reviews are. Um, I kind of feel like how I got blindsided when I reviewed Dinesh D'Souza's Enemy at Home book. I was really harsh. It was uncomfortable for me to be harsh. Um, um, and then all the other reviews come out and all of a sudden it's like, I was like one of the most favorable reviews Dinesh got. Um, I don't think anyone would call my Deneen review uh, favorable. But regardless, there are these people who like are seriously arguing these things. And I worked from the assumption that that um, Knowles was, you know, washing that dross for a wider audience. Um, I still think that's probably true. I don't particularly care because it's stupid to say whether, however he was thinking about it. And, um, uh, but like, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not my fault that people are trying to build a political and intellectual movement around the insanely stupid, I mean, really profoundly stupid idea that we would be better off living under the norms and expectations of the 13th century. And like, they always say the 13th century as if there is this place, like, like every place was the same place, whatever year, you know, when they already talk about, you know, the pre-enlightenment past, you know, or whether it's the Roman empire or wherever, you know, they always make it sound like every place was the same, working the same. And, and like, um, you know, like, oh, in the 1200s, everybody, you know, lived this way. Well, do you mean 1200s Russia? Do you mean 1200s, you know, Belgium, 1200s England? Because there's quite a bit of diversity. And the diversity was all in degrees of suffering and misery. And it's just, it's so, it's so funny and stupid to me. Now, this is, I mean, this, again, I will get deeper into the Deneen book in a future podcast, I am sure. But part of my, my primary critique of all of these people, I love political theory, right? I love that stuff. But political theory absent any consideration of what the facts on the ground were, how people actually lived, is more like masturbation or like, you know, uh, LARPing. Deneen wants to, you know, emulate the political thought of Polybius, Aristotle, and, you know, Aquinas and these kinds of guys. That's all great. It's fine. Good ideas in there. A lot, of, a lot of their best stuff was already incorporated into Enlightenment thinking and, and into the Constitution itself. But whatever, fine. It's, it's, I believe passionately that that stuff is worth engaging in. I'm not a Straussian, but I, 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 I think that, you know, that, that timeless conversation stuff is important and worth doing. And you should know your canon and you should know your past. 
and you should grapple with these ideas and you should understand that, that we are standing on the shoulders of giants when it comes to all sorts of comp- concepts. We have, there's all of this embedded knowledge in, in, in our institutions and in our customs and norms. I, I agree with all of that stuff. That's great. But like, do you have any idea how much it sucked to live in the 13th century? Any idea how much it sucked to live in the, you know, the 16th century? It was, you know, up until, I don't want to give you hard dates, but let's just say the 1700s, say the 1800s, you know, it was normal for every family to know what it was like to lose at least one child to death before the age of five. It was normal. It was like, ah, we don't, damn it, we lost another one yesterday. You know, Virginia Postrel makes this, you know, it was really great on this stuff because she got, she gets into like these obscure bits of, of, of material history, you know, like she had that book about fabric. She go back and, you know, listen to the podcast I did with her. And, you know, the reason why we call things heirlooms is that you were given, um, like an heirloom, a loom was like this thing that, that was the centerpiece of domestic life for women where they had to be weaving, you know, when they weren't making dinner, you know, or, you know, slaughtering pigs or whatever else that they were doing, you know, they were weaving all day long into the night, weaving and weaving and weaving. And like when they get married, they get this piece of cloth that they wear, you know, as part of like their bridal veil or whatever. And then it becomes the piece of cloth that like 10 years later, they're buried with. It was a brutal, horrible life. There was this great Twitter thread the other day, some, you know, NatCon, New Right, I don't know, whatever, um, goober, you know, it showed this picture of some dude driving a car saying, you know, um, this man should have, you know, this man in, in ancient times would be directing legions and now he's doing something cuckish, I don't know what. And uh, this guy, Brett Devereaux, I think that's his name, uh, he did this fantastic Twitter thread um, showing how, you know, the number of, you know, young, able-bodied men who were like leading legions was like 0.001% of Roman society, while like 90% of Roman society were dirt poor farmers or grunt soldiers, mostly dirt poor, far, dirt poor peasant farmers. Um, and, you know, if you were going to lead legions or anything in ancient Rome, you had to be born into the nobility um, and even then it was rare that you were given command of anything. And anyway, his point was sort of similar to the point I've made on here a bunch of times is that when, when people talk about like reincarnation, they always imagine that there was some sort of like Duke or Earl or Queen or, or Emperor or something. They never imagined that they were sort of a, uh, you know, mentally handicapped surf with a club foot who spent 10 hours a day poking at the earth to barely get a few potatoes out of it which is how most people lived. Um, you know, we are all, all of us, including the richest people out there, um, the people with benefit from the most intergenerational wealth imaginable, we're all descended from poor people. The only distinction um, in this regard between anybody is like how many generations back you have to go before you find really, really poor people. And for most of us, including, you know, 
almost all the listeners here, um, I'd be shocked if more than 2% of the listeners here can go back more than three generations, four generations before they were in po- their family was in poverty. And I mean real poverty. And so this idea of going back to the 12, you know, 1200s, 13th freaking century and saying how things were better and how social norms were better. Like you didn't have a right by trial. You know, you didn't have, I mean, I, you had a right, you could have a trial, but a trial was like, let's torture, torture you and see if you confess to a crime you didn't commit. Um, the amount of people who died of food poisoning, died of, you know, stupid infections, um, um, the murder rates, the child infant mortality rates, you know, all of these things, all these people who live in air conditioned homes, you know, yammering like I am right now into laptops and microphones talking about, but I'm not talking about how things were better off nearly a thousand years ago. Um, you know, they were not better off by any, any measurable standard. There's, you know, a reason why so many, and I am not trying to denigrate um, the fundamental dogmas, doctrines of Christianity or Judaism or any other religion. But one of the reasons why, and there are theologians who've written a lot about this, but one of the reasons why the, there was this incredible concern for your eternal soul in, you know, in, in pre-modern Europe was it was just taken as a given that this life sucks, that this life is miserable and backbreaking and full of pain. Um, most, the vast, vast majority, vast majority of people couldn't read um, and, you know, and lived with their livestock. They all ate out of one pot. People were dropping from weird bowel stewing diseases all of the time. And so concern for what was going to happen to you in the next life was really, 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 really important. I'm not saying it's not important now or anything like that, but you can see why, um, was it Paul Tillich talks about, you know, sort of religion addresses the question of your ultimate concern. Um, you can see why the ultimate concern was going to be whether or not you were going to get a better deal in the next life because so many people had a terrible deal in this life. And um, this nonsense nostalgia for um, these imagined pasts is so harmful, self-serving, self-indulgent, and stupid to me. Um, it's fine to look at the thinking of Aristotle on all of that, but like the idea that you can go back to the, you know, the, 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 the social structures and social norms of the era of Aristotle or Aquinas or any of these people is just ludicrous. Um, and when people, you know, glibly talk about how it'd be better to go back to the 1220s, um, you know, where it was perfectly fine to beat your children and beat your wife. Um, and um, where, uh, you know, in point of fact, I think a lot of wives killed their husbands back in those days. Um, There's a lot of poisoning going on because, and it's not like, you know, you know, the coroner would come in and said, this man was poisoned, right? People were dying of really weird, inexplicable diseases all the time. Um, 
And the only recourse a lot of women had was to, you know, put ground glass in the food or poison their husband or something like that. It was a miserable time. And, um, and this idea that somehow we can create some sort of Epcot center or, you know, medieval times where they serve Pepsi, um, kind of vision of that moral order is ludicrous. You know, this is one of my big problems with Deneen's first book, um, or I don't, it wasn't his first book, but the, the precursor to this new regime change book was, um, you know, how liberalism or why liberalism failed is his treatment of women in that, you know, is grotesque to me. Um, it's not like, he's not, he's not sexist. He's not, you know, he's not misogynist in any meaningful obvious way or anything like that. And, you know, and I've, I've met Patrick many times and, you know, he's a dignified, decent guy. And I'm sure he treats the women in his life with nothing but respect and all that. But his downplaying of, um, you know, the emancipation of women. And I don't just simply mean that sort of like they got to vote. I mean, in terms of their ability to live or at least pursue fulfilled lives as, as fully fledged human beings with moral agency. Um, he kind of waved away in that book with a few to be sure sentences, not even paragraphs. Um, and he only did it to then say, so, you know, they were liberated from one kind of bondage, but now they're in another kind of bondage of the sort of the meritocratic, you know, neoliberal capitalist state. Well, the kind of bondage that, you know, the modern economy puts women in, I'm not saying it's perfect for anybody, but it's a lot better than the kind of bondage women were in in the 12th century. You know, like I would run for the border with my daughter in the trunk of my car if there was any chance that any of these people had any possibility of recreating the kind of moral universe that they blithely and, 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 glibly talk about having any superiority to our own. If they thought that, if I thought, you know, forget The Handmaid's Tale. I mean, Handmaid's Tale is, you know, I mean, it's supposed to be dystopian. It is dystopian. It's not someplace that's, you know, it's, it's gross. All that. I get it, right? But like, I would rather be a woman living in The Handmaid's Tale universe than being a normal woman living in, I don't know, uh, 13th, 12th century Bavaria. Um, Anyway, I, I think it's just all so ridiculous. There's this whole thing in my head. Maybe I'll write about it today. I don't know. Um, um, the Knowles thing put me in mind about it. There was this clip, there was this tweet by Chernovich last night. Uh, the, it was this goofball. I don't even know how to ideologically label him, but he was one of those early sort of Trump booster MAGA type guys. And um, I think he's just a deluded freak kind of guy, but um, he's really popular with, you know, the sort of the tes testicle tanning set. I don't know what I'm supposed to call those kind of people, the sort of uh, that weird space between the sort of eggheady new right and the QAnon incel testicle tanning crowd. I don't know. It's part of that universe. I can't quite peg and don't want to spend a lot of time on. He tweeted last night, alcohol culture is woke. Boozing means participating in cultural rot. 
This is what the left wants. Liquor stores stayed open while gyms and churches shut down. Conservatives don't want to admit this. Couple of drinks here and there, fine. Otherwise, woke. Now, there are two things going on here, right? One is that alcohol is bad. That's an argument. It's a legitimate argument. It's an old argument. Doesn't mean it's a wrong argument. I probably drink too much. Drinking is not great for your health. Moderation is important. Um, it's also it's also not evil. Prohibition was a bad idea. Health nuts, really anti-alcohol. Anyway, everyone knows those arguments. The other argument here is that like drinking, like alcohol is kind of like the deep states or the woke left's soma that it is using to fuel cultural rot and keep us down or whatever. So the first argument is credible, but debatable, right? The second argument, spectacularly idiotic. Um, and it sort of gets to this sort of thinking that I was talking about earlier, where you find something that you think is bad and you have to reverse engineer the motivations to say it's intended to be bad, to keep us down, to persecute us, to make us into victims and all this kind of stuff. The woke left isn't putting, isn't making alcohol available to keep the authentic masculine voices of the resurgent nationalist right down or anything like that. It's just this country likes alcohol. It's a drinking country. It has been. That's why we got rid of prohibition. But as a drinking country, it also has this rich tradition of temperance that doesn't like drinking. Like that happens in lots of countries where, you know, you get you get the reaction to one phenomenon is opposition to the phenomenon. It's fine, whatever. And I'm like, both sides have merit to them. But like, it has nothing to do with wokeness. It has nothing to do, you know, and like, and this is the thing. This is why I'm beginning to think that like the the woke stuff is is jumping the shark. And I and I and I say this as someone who like I agree with a big chunk of the right like what a lot of the stuff that DeSantis is picking fights with, I agree with him on the substance where I agree with him um in principle whether it's worth the political capital to do some of the things he's doing or whether um it's you know it's just sort of pandering to a base that I don't think he needs to pander to anymore. I mean, there's there are prudential prudential political questions and disagreements there, but like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I think, you know, is not age appropriate for little kids in schools that I have no problem with them pulling out. I think that, you know, uh, the critical race theory stuff is bad and wrong and overdone. That doesn't mean I don't want to teach about slavery. That doesn't mean I don't want to teach about, you know, racism in this country. The idea that if you don't teach critical race theory, you are therefore never going to teach anything bad about America's racial past is just ludicrous. Just It's just factually wrong. I mean, I you know, most of my American history stuff in high school was about the civil rights movement and the Civil War and slavery. And that's, you know, about it. I, you know. There's all sorts of stuff about American history I didn't really get taught or didn't get taught for long precisely because that, you know, the narrative about slavery and racism crowded out everything else. And I think that's generally the case across the country. That's not the same thing as teaching sort of, you know, Ibram Kendi anti-racism, critical race theory stuff. Anyway, that's not my point. My point is, is that you're now having this sort of paranoid style in American politics thing take over with wokeness where anything that people don't like, or I'm not, not normal people, but you know, people like 
you know, this Chernovich guy or like uh, Charlie Kirk. And I think everybody knows my esteem for him. There's a clip out there of him talking about he's just going through his refrigerator saying, is, is this woke? Is this ketchup woke? Is this mustard woke? What about this mayo? You know, there is this sort of classic sort of so moral panic, social contagion freak out going on where people think, you know, if you, if something can plausibly called, be called woke, it's a talisman or something, that it has some magical properties to it that, um, that must be exorcised in some profound way. And it makes, you know, it's very much like the old Bircher, you know, bodily fluids stuff. It's the logic of the cancer cell, right? Which is this great phase like this, this intellectual story and Gilbert Allardyce used for fascism. I think the title of the paper, it's from like 1973 or something like that. It was a big influence on me. What he was doing was talking about how the left or the academic historian, intellectual historians or a mixture of the two, whatever, they'd kind of lost the plot with their study of fascism because fascism had come to mean, as Orwell would put it, everything not desirable. It was one of these great essays uh, for me when I was writing liberal fascism because it kind of gave me intellectual permission to really understand that if I was going to write about fascism, I should trust my instincts and and try to come try to come to a plausible and defensible definition of fascism on my own because the accepted or reigning definitions of fascism in the academic literature were such convoluted garbage that they, they, made, they would make no sense to a normal reader. Maybe one of these days I'll do a whole thing on the intellectual history of, of fascism stuff for here. But, you know, you had like Ernst Nolte was one of the big German revisionist historians. You know, he had his, I think it was Nolte, his uh, six fascist negations, right? This was his attempt to find a definition of fascism that required listing like the six things that fascism wasn't, which as you can see is kind of a convoluted way to sort of define something. And so anyway, this Allardyce guy, you know, he makes this argument that, you know, he, he starts talking about how basically any nationalist, non-explicitly Marxist, although sometimes there were Marxist fascist movements, um, national Bolshevism in Russia was and is a real thing. He was like, you get to this point where the definition just becomes so ever-changing and metastasizing. He says, that, you know, it becomes like the it follows the logic of the cancer cell. And I always loved that phrase. Jack Butler always used to pull it out of stuff that I wrote um, or argue for pulling it out. Um, and Jack was wrong and I was right. But that's what the woke thing has become or is becoming where um, these people all think they know exactly what it is but then they start applying it to wildly divergent things that, among other things, pre-existed, predated this concept of wokeness by a wide margin. Now, I know there's actually in, um, in black culture and African-American culture, there's a specific meaning of woke. Um, I, I have some sympathy for black friends who are like, you know, these crazy white right-wingers are running away with, the, with this term. And I'm like, you know, welcome to my world. <laughs> you know, what do you think they're doing with conservatism? But, um, it, you know, it used to mean like sort of just stay aware, stay, you know, keep your head on a swivel kind of thing. Um, 
um, stay uh, committed to, you know, uh, the right causes, all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to try and define the historically grounded definition of wokeness for, 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 for black folk, but it's in that ballpark, right? And now it is just this ideological um, anathematizing catch-all for certain right-wingers. And the thing is, is like, like I get, you know, the, 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 that, the current definition of, of, of that current left-wing thought, I think it's perfectly, for political purposes, it's perfectly defensible to say, okay, that's woke kind of thing. But you can't have it both ways. You can't say that, you know, conventional left-wing thought is now called woke and that conventional left-wing thought, that, that and that wokeness is this new and uniquely sinister and pernicious ideology that requires new tactics, um, um, new strategies, and um, abandoning old positions to fight it because it's so dangerous, right? It can't be both, because if it's just a, it's a if it's just a rebranding of very old left wing ideas, then the right doesn't need to abandon all of its principles and views and do this fight fire with fire garbage. Um, and if it's brand new, then you can't start calling um, every single thing you don't like that the left does woke. Um, it just, there, there's this, that inherent tension. And again, I think there's this thing going on. I, I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but you know, uh, I should go back and look at Noah Rothman's The New Puritanism stuff, or The New Puritan stuff. Um, the progressives had this very serious puritanical streak to them. Very serious puritanical streak. I mean, let's, the, the prohibition movement was part of the progressive movement. Um, and again, it's one of these things that makes it difficult to sort of do clean ideological analysis using contemporary understandings of right and left um, about the progressive era because a lot of these sort of suffragette temperance movement types um, were very sort of religiously socially conservative as we would call it today, but also wildly in favor of sort of left-wing economic understandings, left-wing understandings about the role of the state um, you know, this stuff that I was talking about earlier about um, piercing the, the, the sanctity of the family to go after young kids um, for the, the trans stuff, that was one of the central ideas of like people like Charlotte Perkins Gilman and a whole bunch of the early feminists who loved this idea of liberating children from their families. That idea in, comes back in the 50s and 60s with the Frankfurt School Marxists, people like Max Horkheimer, Horkheimer they traced fascism to the, the nuclear family where the father was the authoritarian figure. And, you know, and that's where, uh, you know, the, the, what, what Theodore Adorno would call the fascist um, personality, the authoritarian, authoritarian personality comes from, was from the, the strict nature of the nuclear family and the patriarchy and all this stuff. For those of you who don't know, basically, you know, Frankfurt School Marxism is just simply Freud plus Marx plus bullshit, and that's uh, what you get for Frankfurt School Marxism. But regardless, it kind of feels like this spirit 
of puritanical progressivism, that kind of stuff, is morphing into, is, is, is morphing rightward. And a lot of these people, I mean, I think it's still very powerful on the left, but there are a lot of people on the right, the sort of NACON right, the, the sort of uh, testicle tanning right, the whatever, QAnon right with this whole pure blood thing. They don't realize it, but they're basically just rediscovering a lot of these instincts and impulses from the sort of puritanical tradition, the progressive puritanical tradition in American history. And they think it's a new idea and it's a new argument. And so like, you know, they're going through their fridge looking for wokeness and they think alcohol is, you know, is corrupting our souls, you know, and that we, we need to have this restorationist, reactionist, you know, return to you know, a more authentic, more authentic, organic moral order like we had in the 1220s or whatever. Um, anyway, it's just something to keep an eye out for. Oh, no, there's also like, you know, all these little incel brats who, you know, uh, sort of hate women and embrace, are terrified of women and embrace sort of celibacy because they think that's the way to sort of own the libs or something. There's a lot of weird crap going on out there. And I think it draws on some of these American tendencies in ways that are kind of hard to identify or that are easy to miss at first. Anyway, I'm all done. I got to go. I got a checkup thing for my surgery from my nose that I'm late for. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to everybody, seriously, who showed up for um, the Houston event. It was great. We want to do more of them. I think to make these things work long-term, we're going to need to figure out a better sponsorship way of doing this. We're really grateful to our sponsors in Houston. They're great guys. We owe them a lot. But if we want, we want to start doing this kind of stuff like on a monthly basis and all of that kind of thing. And um, we just need to sort of up the amount of money we can make from these events to justify the time and the expense of doing this. If, if they're going to be marketing things for boosting subscriptions, that's justifiable in one way. But if they're going to be straight up things that we're not selling tickets to, um, to members at least, um, we got to figure out uh, a way to up the sponsorship. So if there are people out there who want to sponsor these things and have large checkbooks, please let us know. But we're definitely going to do more of them regardless. We just have to figure out, you know, some of the details. And um, thank you all so much for listening. And I will talk to you next time.